0: Welcome to The Theopas Podcast, I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with Alistair Roberts, James B. John, and Jeff Myers. Brian Motes, as usual, is in the background, he'll be recording and uh, editing and smoothing everything out for you. We are in the middle of a series of studies in the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, We're roughly halfway through the book. As we pointed out numerous times in this series, uh, a large chunk of the book of Deuteronomy is organized around the 10 words. The Ten Commandments are repeated in Deuteronomy chapter 5. They're first given, of course, in in Exodus when Israel comes to Sinai. And in Exodus 20, we have uh, the words that the Lord spoke from the mountain that are recorded there. And then in Deuteronomy 5, we have uh, that uh, ten-word set of commands repeated with some modifications. Uh, and that, uh, that uh, second rendition of the ten words sets the pattern for the next 20 chapters or, or so. Of the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, So right now we're um, into the fourth word section, that is the Sabbath section. We started that last time with the end of chapter 14. Uh, Chapter 14 talks about tithes uh, and gifts that are brought to the place that the Lord is going to choose. Uh, And chapters 15 and most of chapter 16 are also part of the fourth word section. Uh, They're part of the Sabbath command. Uh, And as we've seen elsewhere, the Sabbath commands, uh, the command is expanded beyond what the immediate focus is in the 10 words. So we saw this when we looked at the second word. The second word in the 10 words forbids Israel to worship God through images, but not to make images and bow down to them and serve them. But in Deuteronomy, the second word section of Deuteronomy includes uh, the instructions about a a central sanctuary in Deuteronomy 12. It includes instructions about how to deal with Seduction to idolatry, mediators who are trying to uh, trying to entice Israel away from Yahweh to worship other gods. So chapters twelve and thirteen are the second word section of Deuteronomy, uh, but it doesn't focus on images. It focuses on a broader set of issues that's related to the question of images, uh, and that's what we have also in the fourth word section. The fourth word section is uh, includes instruction about uh, keeping certain days. We'll see that in chapter sixteen, but chapter fifteen. Although it's about the Sabbath, uh, is not about keeping days or a liturgical calendar or anything like that. Instead, it's about release from debt and release from slavery. So De- Deuteronomy 15 begins with what's called the Shemitah Law. Uh, that's the word for release, and specifically the law of release from debt. Uh, this is part of the Sabbath Law because the Sabbath Law requires uh, Israelites not only to take a day, one day, and seven as their own rest, but also to give relief to uh, those who are under their care. So uh, in both Exodus and Deuteronomy 5, the Sabbath law is phrased, uh, not only thou shalt do no work, but also uh, you or your son or your daughter, your man your female servant, stranger within your gates, even the animals get the Sabbath rest. So the rest of the Sabbath is extended to the household, uh, and they have relief from work. Release from the obligation to work one day every every seven once every seven days, Uh, and so the the law of release from debt uh, at the beginning of chapter fifteen comes under that general heading of the Sabbath, and in indicates thus that the Sabbath command is not just a command about keeping a day, just not just a command about leisure or rest, uh, but it it embodies and entails a social vision, an economic vision, a way of life for Israel. Uh, In in the Deuteronomy 5, the Sabbath command is rooted in the Exodus. In, De- in Exodus 20, when the Sabbath command is first given, it's rooted in creation. God rested after he worked for six days and created the world. But in Deuteronomy 5, the Sabbath command is given, but then uh, the rationale for the Sabbath command is not creation, but Exodus. And so, because the Lord has released Israel from uh, the onerous oppression of Pharaoh and given them rest— so Israel is supposed to give rest, uh, and that's the same motivation that's given here in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy fifteen. So in verse fifteen, there's an explicit reference to uh, the uh, the Exodus. Remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and Yahweh your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this t- today. That's part of a, a law about slavery, release from slavery. But the the reason why they uh, Israel is to manumit slaves and let slaves go after seven years, is because Yahweh himself released Israel uh, from Egypt. And the the, the more uh, basic theological pattern we can see there is it's an Old Testament version of what uh, Pauline scholars call an indicative imperative pattern. Uh, in Paul's letters, you often have a section of the letter that's uh, describing what God has done in Jesus Christ, and then another part of the letter is describing what the readers of the letter are supposed to do as a result. And uh, those two uh, the indicative part what god has done the imperative part what is what uh, the church is supposed to do those are connected uh what what god has done shapes what the way that uh, the people of god should live and that's the same kind of principle we have in uh, the and the sabbath laws uh, they've received exodus therefore they should give they should give exodus uh and uh, that's uh that we'll see in d- in the details of the of the uh Debt release and the details of the Sabbath uh, of the slave law, rather here in Deuteronomy 15, that that Exodus pattern is not just a general rationale for what Israel is supposed to do, but it also uh, forms the specific ways that they're supposed to treat slaves and the specific ways they're supposed to release debtors. Uh, so the Sabbath is looming in the background. Uh, the indicative imperative pattern—that's a grammatical way of describing it. Uh, another way of describing the same the same pattern in Scripture. Is uh the the principle that what we receive we give. Freely you receive, freely give. We receive rest, therefore give rest. We receive life, give life. We receive God's blessing, therefore we distribute God's blessing. Uh, that's the pattern that we have going through chapter 15. You Israel has received Exodus, and therefore they're supposed to extend that exodus into the details of their life as a nation.
1: Just a general comment, if I might, on the um kind of structure and some of the connections in in this chapter i mean it feels very much to me that the the family and the household unit is so central to a lot of what's going on in deuteronomy not just in terms of the parent-son relationship between yahweh and, and israel but just more generally children are to respect parents and that they will be blessed um if they do, um, and that mercy will continue for many generations, and as you've been saying, Peter, the, the, the Sabbath is to spill out into the household, etc., and and so the house and, and the family is to be this sort of channel for great blessing, um, but also attached to it is responsibility, and so we had in perhaps a couple of chapters. Like it was now you know when uh things went wrong if people um enticed uh, israel away into idolatry the, the parents would be to uh those to pick up the first stone you know so so discipline was to be uh meted out by those who were closest and it seems to be that throughout this chapter um the idea of the loans is and um the idea of, of lending is that it's done by those who are closest so um in verse 11 for instance you you are to open wide your hand to your brother um and to the needy and and the poor in your land um and and there's explicitly the um statement are poor isn't there and um just in in verse 2 you know you're not to exact this um credit of your neighbor um comma your your brother and it it seems to be that yeah as troubles um arise it, it is the responsibility of that immediate unit, the the family, the household, to try and rectify these things. So, there's blessing in the house, but also responsibility.
0: So, are you taking brother uh, there uh, as a reference specifically to uh, blood kin? Uh, or are you thinking, is it possible, do you think that uh, brother refers to the brotherhood of Israel, that all Israelites are treated as brothers?
1: So, I do think all Israelites are treated as brothers, but in chapter two, for instance, when it's in opposition to your neighbour, um, then that that feels like it's to me like it's more got that sense of closeness. I mean, of course, there's a situation here where clans are probably going to stay together. The the idea isn't going to be that when someone um, uh, Child grows up, or something. The expectation isn't going to be that they just move to some new tribal territory in, in Israel, but that it is predicated on on that idea of um, property being kept within families and and, and the like.
0: Yeah, and it's interesting. I I, I think that uh, fits with uh, some of the things I was saying in our last uh, last episode uh, in talking about the embeddedness of Israel's economy. That's a term that comes from Carl Polanyi's book, The Great Transformation. Uh, and he talks about economic activity and economic exchanges being embedded within social relations, familial relations, neighborly relations, uh, relations of common citizenship. It's not anonymous economic actors who are uh, are conducting exchanges with one another, but uh, there's uh, the uh, economic exchanges are an aspect of a wider set of exchanges and wider set of relations that that people have. so um yeah, the, whether it's Israel in general or specific members of the family, I think that that point still holds. I want to highlight uh, just one thing that you mentioned uh, from verse eleven that Christopher Wright points out: uh, the phrase "your poor." You you flag that, and and he makes a good uh, good bit of that phrase. It's not just the poor, uh, as if there are people within the nation of Israel who are can kind of class of unknown poor people. They're they are part of the community. They're your poor, just as it's your brother, uh, it's um, your land. Uh, those uh, possessive uh, phrases are used uh, throughout verse eleven, uh, and the poor are not to be considered as outsiders or an underclass or somehow excluded from the community of Israel. But they belong to Israel, uh, and they belong to Israel in part as a uh, as a as a call to charity, a call to generosity, a call for the exercise of virtue, and they. They're part of Israel in the sense that they they're understood to make contributions to the community. So I think that uh, right, I think correctly, is emphasizing the point that we shouldn't we shouldn't think of the poor as being outside of us and somehow distant from us, but they belong to us and are an integral part of a, of the uh, community of the of the people of God.
1: Yeah, and there's also the fact that is it in verse seven? I can't remember now, but they are said they are those who become poor. I mean ingrained into the whole notion of a Jubilee cycle is that there isn't, in a sense, this class of the permanently poor because there is just this reset and um uh, and so the idea is is here is is dealing with those who are temporarily poor. And your point about embedding this, Peter strikes me as very important, you know. I mean, these days, someone gets into financial hardship, let's say, and um, they might enter a permanent sort of debt cycle, which is a problem for a start that things like the Jubilee rectify. But suppose they take out a loan. It, it's all done in a very kind of faceless way. You go down to the bank or perhaps you even just apply to it um, online. You know, you, you don't feel any great gratitude um, from the or towards the bank because they're going to make um, money off you. You don't feel any great responsibility to them either because there's they're this massive billion dollar corporation and the people who you speak to there are just employees anyway. Um now contrast that with you know a loan from uh a next of kin or, or something he, he's going to be nearby um keeping an eye on you you're going to feel gratitude towards him for loaning you the money presumably you know in, in uh friendly terms etc you know there's going to be responsibility towards him and and so that embedded nature of it all seems seems very important to bear in mind and a good principle
0: yeah and i think that that's in the best of circumstances what you're describing that uh, somebody goes to a bank and gets a loan uh i don't know if you have this phenomenon in the uk but in the states there are these quick loan locations uh you know you go through any poor neighborhood and they're or two or three places where people can get uh, quick loans at uh, exorbitant interest rates, uh, and of course, uh, there's a there's a a long history of lenders using that uh, that relationship of dependence, that relationship of dominance that they have, the relationship of dependence that the that the borrower has, uh, in order to extract all kinds of concessions, in order to in order to confiscate property. Uh, Nick Perrin makes this point uh, when he's talking about the in his book Jesus the Temple. He talks about the, the way that uh, temple authorities used loans in the uh, uh, in the first century. They often gave out loans that the temple was the main bank. They would give out loans at exorbitant interest rates that could not be repaid, and then when they were not repaid, they would seize the property that has held as collateral. And so the the temple authorities continue to expand their their holdings precisely through the mechanism of loans so um yeah in the best of circumstances you're dealing with a kind of an anonymous giant gigantic corporation in the worst of circumstances you're locked into something and uh what what is supposed to be a temporary relief for um your uh, of your debt uh, of your of your economic crisis the loan is supposed to be that temporary relief it becomes something permanent something devastating to your to your uh, well-being
2: are are we agreed that this is this chapter deals mainly with charitable loans, uh, and that there might be other forms of loans made between Israelites and even foreigners that, um, where interest is um, is exacted, but not exorbitantly, that may not fall under this release uh, every seven years. It seems as if this is an individual Israelite uh, who has enough, who has the wherewithal to help someone else and is morally challenged, morally required in some sense here to open his hand freely and to lend to this uh, poor Israelite and and then to release the debt uh, after seven years. Um, I'm not sure whether... There might be more like commercial loans that were made between uh, people, partners, or uh, or, or, or just uh, uh, families that might not come under this kind of requirement for release. I I just have that as a question.
0: It does seem like the assumption throughout the chapter is that you're dealing with charitable loans, uh, as you said, Jeff, like uh, verse four, the promise that there shall be no poor among you. That's uh, a comment that's reflecting back on the first three verses that have to do with the release of debt um verse seven if there's a man poor man with you one of your brothers in your towns you shall not harden your heart um again it's uh the assumption is that it's a poor it's a poor man don't be hostile to your poor brother verse nine you shall give generously to him uh, the poor one never ceased to be in your land verse 11 uh so yeah I think the the assumption throughout is that this is the assumed situation is uh, somebody who gets into economic uh, difficulty. I, I I think James's point is really important too. That uh, what's envisioned here is not a permanent form of, not a permanent underclass. The poor are not a uh, the the people who categorized as poor are not supposed to be a a, uh, a an unchanging set of people who never get out of their poverty. In fact, the whole point of the remission law is that uh, people get a fresh start, as James said. So, but I think, yeah, that's the that's the that's a scenario that's envisioned. I think throughout the chapter,
2: there's an astonishing kind of connection here in verse six. For Yahweh your God will bless you. In other words, if you if you obey this and you do what I'm asking to do, as He promised you, you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow, and you shall rule over many nations, but they shall not rule over you couple things there is that so the way the nation of israel the way the people of israel treat one another and especially the way they treat their poor individually i you know family to family and and uh, the way the richer folks in the in the country in the in the land uh freely lend to their brothers and sisters who are in need is going to lead to Economic prosperity for the whole nation, so that the nation then will be able to lend to other nations, and in that lending, rule. Uh, so there, there's this kind of future orientation, or this motivation of future national prominence, uh, success um, that is tied to individual charitable giving which is um, fascinating to think about uh, because it seems to me like sometimes in the modern world, at least, and I think there's some application here that can be made, you know, uh, making the necessary adjustments. (laughs) We think that economic prosperity and uh, prominence is going to come about when we just uh, exact More money from everybody, you know, as as a state, as a as a political entity, um, and don't realize that there's some sort of almost mystical connection uh, that God oversees. When you don't take care of your poor, then your nation is going to become poor, and you're gonna you're going to be uh, in economic straits, uh, not so much because of, um of your businesses and the productivity of your businesses but because you're not taking care of the poor in your land you're you're abusing them you're you're misusing them you're uh uh kind of like what you mentioned Peter with the nation of Israel in the first century in the way they used their temple um well that's that's a connection there that's why the nation was judged. And of course, Jesus comes into the situation there and he's doing exactly the kind of thing. Well, not exactly because he's not necessarily a rich man, but he's taking care of the poor and the neglected and the disenfranchised. Um, and he's showing Israel what Israel ought to be like and how they ought to behave. Uh, of course, and the Pharisees, chief priests, scribes, elders all resist that. But I think that's all connected somehow is that um, Israel becomes uh, the mess that she is in the first century uh, because she's not taking care of her poor.
0: Yeah, I think that's a great point, Jeff. Uh, and I, I'm putting in the mind of the proverb, I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but he was generous with, to the poor. It lends to the Lord. So there's, um, and, and and the Lord repays with uh, with abundant excess. So there, there's a connection as you say there's a connection between uh, generosity to the poor and the prosperity of a nation uh, the prosperity of israel particularly uh, the other the other obvious thing from verse 6 that uh, that you implied is that you have this connection that the two parallel clauses at the end of the verse lend nations borrow rule nations uh, not rule um, and in in both cases the the verb that surrounds the many nations phrase is the same verb. So the, the verb for lend and borrow is different aspects of the same verb. But uh, that parallel, the, the parallel clauses there, link up lending with ruling and borrowing with being ruled over. So uh, the the borrow is slave to the lender is a is the principle that's, that's in there. And again, to uh, go back to my opening comments, What's going on with the law of release is a, a little exodus, you know. If the if the borrower is slave to the lender and the lender lets go of the loan, then he's he's uh, he's a Moses at that moment, and he's leading uh, an Israelite out of slavery into into freedom.
3: When we're talking about this practice of lending, um, it seems important to bear in mind just how much usury was seen as. Uh, as unthinkable within um, many traditional Christian, um, Jewish and um, other societies that have been influenced by Christian and biblical thought. Um, And many of the arguments against usury would go back to passages like Deuteronomy 15. There would be money put into a joint business venture, for instance, which wouldn't necessarily take the character of a a loan requiring interest. It would be a joint venture where the losses and the gains would be shared between the two parties. If we're talking about the sorts of loans envisaged here, it's someone who doesn't really have any profit-making venture to offer. And so it wouldn't be something that would attract that sort of investment and collaboration. Rather, it would be a situation where the person needed the money and didn't necessarily have anything... um, strong to offer an exchange. They could hope to pay it back and it would be primarily something a duty of the family to support and then other nearer neighbours. But it seems to me that we need to wrestle also with the change in our understandings of society and money that have led to our strong distinctions between charitable loans and the more general lending at interest that is normal within modern western society but until fairly recently in christian history has been seen as unthinkable
0: yeah can you can you uh fill that out a little bit alistair are you suggesting that we've uh we've deviated uh and uh there's a moral decline in the fact that we now make that distinction or are you just saying it's a it's part of the development of different kinds of society
3: at least the latter um i want us to Think about the question more generally and not just to take for granted that there is this tidy distinction. Um, if we look back in um, Christian history, there are so many arguments against usury that it it seems to be dangerous to just skirt over them. I think we need to wrestle with them and maybe consider the sort of society in which those sorts of restrictions were very thinkable. A society, for instance, where there is this strong sense of kinship, that if you're going to be engaging in um, economic transactions, you're not doing that as strangers who are just individuals with their own private interests. You're doing that with your brothers within a wider social order, where you have to recognize bonds of reciprocity that continue beyond the bounds of a, a very restricted transaction. And so the notions that we have within a capitalist society are not the ones that prevailed for um, much of Western Christian history. And we need to at least step back from those enough to understand them as a development, and then start to reflect upon whether that is a good development, a bad development, and some of the particular aspects of... um, some of the particular moves that made that development possible and thinkable. So certainly within history, there were a lot of um, moves to incorporate new diff- different models of financial transaction that were seen as licit to the point that um, lending interest was something that you could more or less do with workarounds. Um, but it was still seen as something that was Inappropriate, even in those situations where there were a lot of bendings of the rules, and so I, I just, it, it seems to me that there are questions that we need to ask about our financial systems, um, that we shouldn't let ourselves off too easy.
0: Yeah, I think that's that's a great point. Um, one of the background things I think uh, I go back to Polanyi's language. Uh, what he, he contrasts uh, the embedded economic system uh, prior to the. Uh, rise of modern economies, capitalist economies, industrialized economies, um, uh, and then the great disembedding is part of the story that he's telling. How economic labor became uh, a commodity uh, in which that was that was uh, basically for sale in a market, a labor market. Land became a commodity that's for sale in a market, uh, and he makes the point that uh, neither of those things were true uh, in older economic you're not talking about ancient economies but older european economies land was land exchanges were governed not by market forces but by other rules other sorts of rules uh and the same thing with the uh, with labor um and so yeah part of what the background of what you're talking about is is this disembedding so you don't have um you don't have a credit and and debt being conducted within something like that uh, familial or social uh, you you have credit to debt that's being exchanged among strangers uh, and again i think um I'm glad, i i i agree too with your uh, somewhat cautious way of uh saying you're just raising the question i think that's um i'm not prejudging whether that's entirely uh, an evil i think there's certainly economic benefits that come from an economy of strangers you can see uh, economic growth is a uh, can be a good it's not necessarily good but it can be a good uh, and uh, economies grow. Uh, economies have grown faster under the uh, under a system where the economic actors are strangers rather than brothers. So I'm not I'm not prejudging the good or bad of that, but I think that's one of the background things that you're talking about.
1: It's
3: interesting. Uh, also, there is a distinction between brothers and strangers already operating within Deuteronomy 15. The right, requirements right. for lending for brothers are different from those to other nations.
2: Yeah, that's what I was going to ask, Uh, help me with this. Isn't it true that um, the way uh, many Christians have interpreted or applied this is that uh, no interest to Christian brothers and probably even commercial kind of loans, but um, interest to others outside of the church? Um, Deuteronomy 23, I believe, is where this is uh, explicit. You know, you don't lend to your brother uh, with usury um but to a stranger you can um, that's been interpreted in the past I think uh as requiring Christians to lend to other Christians even in commercial Ventures uh without without uh, exacting interest is that is that true
0: my knowledge of the answer to that question is rests mainly on my uh my study of merchant of venice which is uh, of questionable historicity but that does seem to be the tenor that the even even uh, all kinds of loans there among christians that's the distinguishing mark between christians and the jew shylock in merchant of venice that he lends at interest so that's that's one of the circumventions that we christians can't lend lend at interest but we can get this outsider group to do our dirty work for us and and then we
1: despise them for doing it So I have a question which might be relevant to some of this just to do with the nature of this release. So um, where are we? Verse one, you you shall make, I guess, or or, or do um, a release, a a Shemitah. Now, I haven't looked into this word a huge amount, but I mean, I know that in post-biblical Hebrew, it it comes to refer to the sabbatical year um, and... I'm just wondering if what it could have in mind is a kind of a payment holiday rather than the cancellation of a loan. So just as each seventh year a field would lay fallow, um, the idea would be that you would sort of grant a payment holiday for one year in every seven. And I was just reading through it. I mean, to my mind, that makes quite good sense of verses two and three. So you can have the situation where you are not um exacting it so exacting kind of repayments from the loan of your neighbor brother etc um but verse 3 of a foreigner you may do so so you could have this situation where in the seventh year you have granted your um your brother your neighbor a payment holiday but foreigners are still um paying and Part of my thinking is um, it just seems quite difficult that you could actually run an economy where people, you know, you could have this fixed seventh year coming up and people could borrow large amounts of money on sort of, you know, month 12 of year six and then have it all cancelled sort of almost immediately. So I I don't know if any of you kind of looked into the idea more or, or have views on whether that is or isn't plausible.
2: Well, but if these are charitable loans, I mean, you're not necessarily uh, dishing out large amounts of money for uh, any old reason. This is, uh, according to verse 7 and verse 8, um, w- sufficient for his need, whatever that may be. So this is someone who's become poor um, and for some reason, and and I'm I'm sure that individuals and families would look into this. I mean, if the guy... Became poor because of his own evil behavior. That's a different story. But we're assuming that he's um, that it's just circumstances and he doesn't have control of it. And need he needs help. So you you give him help. So there's not large sums of money. And then the second thing, James, uh, and on this is it, this may be. I mean, it's been argued that this is um, a release of just. That one year's payment. Okay, so it's not that the whole debt is being canceled, but just the one year. It's so like you said, a, a holiday. And then there's also other arguments from other people that uh, what's what's being required here is the release of the securities that the, uh, on which the loans have been made. So, uh, so the, a pledge that's been given um, that guarantees the repayment of the loan you're supposed to give that back after seven years i don't know that and, and i know uh, i think wright argues for this christopher wright that it's probably the pledge or the security the problem with that i see is verse nine and that is take care lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart a base thought and you say the seventh year the year of release is near and your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother and you give him nothing um it seems to me like there's a calculation that could be made by someone that oh you know it's uh, it's two years away and if I help this brother in need then I'm gonna I'm gonna get no I'm gonna maybe get one year of payment back and then I'm gonna lose it all so I can't do that I don't I don't think that verse makes sense if we're just talking about the pledge or the security it seems like we're talking about the whole thing being uh being released. I hope that makes sense.
3: We also have statements in places like Deuteronomy 23, 19 and 20. You shall not charge interest on loans to your brother, interest on money, interest on food, interest on anything that is lent for interest. You may charge a foreigner interest, but you may not charge your brother interest, that the Lord your God may bless you and all that you undertake in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. You also have the fact that the release of slaves in the seventh year would be similar to the release of people from debt. They're um, related um, things to be the borrower is the slave to the lender. And so it seems to me that it can't just be a temporary thing. Um, It's something that uh, is a, a full release at that point.
0: Yeah, that's what I was going to say in relation to James's question. I was going to point to verses seven through nine. Uh, the The instructions it's addressing the um, the motivations of the lender. And interestingly, here's one of the, this is one of the places where you have this uh, this uh, Exodus language come up. Don't harden your heart. That is to say, don't be your don't be a pharaoh in relation uh, to your poor brother. Uh, he might cry out against you. In verse nine, that's again a kind of Exodus motif. Israel was crying out to the Lord um, under the oppression of Pharaoh, and if Israelites act like Pharaoh, then they're going to have the same cries against them. But uh, those verses do seem to addressing the motivation of the person who is not expecting to get anything back if he gives a loan with the Sabbath year near. That does seem to argue for a complete uh, remission. The the other point in relation to Jeff, um, uh, Wright says it's a release of the pledge, but I think that Wright also says, and I know other people say that the release of the pledge is kind of a a sign of a release of the loan as a whole. So you um, give up whatever you hold in uh, as as collateral, and that's in in effect a a remission of the loan itself. Uh, And this somewhat gets to the point that I made about the the verbs in verse 6. Lend to many nations, but you will not borrow. Lend and borrow are the same verb. Lend is in the HIFIL, I think, and borrow is in the cow. And the as uh, the lex- lexicons tell me, I have I've only investigated as far as looking at the lexicon, but the basic meaning is to give a pledge. So the one who's a borrower is giving a pledge to the lender. Uh, the one who is uh loaning is causing the borrower to give a pledge. And so I think that's part of where Wright is getting his his idea that what's what's given up what you release from your hand is the pledge that you're holding from the borrower. Uh, but um that could be taken as just a release of the of the collateral, but uh, I think a release of the collateral as a token of a release from the loan itself.
1: with the idea of a payment holiday, I mean, look, I'm not particularly sold on it or anything, but in verses seven to nine couldn't a payment holiday work equally well so in month 12 of year 6 let's say if you knew that you had to give your um borrower a payment holiday immediately there might be um you, you might be less inclined to give a loan because you're not going to see any repayment of it for um for the next 12 months so i mean i'm, I'm wondering if those verses at least do do really d- decide the issue
0: yeah, fair enough. Uh, you could you could make it work uh, with your suggestion. I think. Uh, I, again, it seems to me that the I don't know that I can d- give a knockdown argument in uh, in favor of a release from the loan, but it does seem like the, the tenor is uh, you're you're not going to get anything back if you loan in the sixth year. You'll get one payment and then the rest of it is gone. That does seem to be the uh, the tenor. That's 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 why you would be grieved. If you wouldn't be, would you be grieved if? You're going to have to wait a year uh, before the before the repayments begin. Is that a source of grief? Uh, it seems like it's more likely a source of grief. Um, I'm I'm looking at um, uh, grieved in the heart. Your heart shall not be grieved. Verse ten seems like more likely that it's a source of grief if you give a loan and then you end up not having to you're not getting any repayment. You know, I I guess we we should make the obvious point that uh, on on either of these scenarios, even if it's a complete release. Uh, it's not a release of all that is loaned. So you loan to your poor brother, he repays for four years, and then uh, uh, you release the entire loan, you let go of that, um, you've still been, uh, you've still received half of the payment back. It's not like you're left um, without any kind of repayment. And even if you lend in the sixth year, you get one year's repayment back. So this is not, the scenario that's in view here is not a cancellation of uh Uh, of debt without repayment at all it's uh it's a cancellation of maybe of certain uh, a certain number of years of the debt cancellation of a certain number of years of repayments
1: yeah that's that yeah that sounds right i mean yeah maybe it is that total release i i guess i'm I'm reminded of what jeff pointed out as well that this is someone who is in need where where was it now um sufficient for his need was one of these um uh, verse eight and um you know we're Possibly when we're thinking about this, we're thinking about, you know, a a 30-year debt from a mortgage or something. And so, um, you know, to release immediately would be a massive release. But, you know, if this is to tide people over who've got into hardship, then, I mean, yeah, it, it may be that these are smallish loans and that someone who you had loaned something in, say, the fourth year might well have been completely repaid anyway. So kind of, yeah, maybe thinking about it in less modern terms helps helps a little bit there.
0: I think it's worth it's worth emphasizing that uh, this entire scenario is premised on the promise that the Lord is going to bless Israel. And Jeff, Jeff highlighted this at one end. Uh, if Israel is faithful in uh, giving relief to the poor, if faithful in enacting these small-scale exodus events and in practicing Sabbath in the uh, economic life of Israel, if they're faithful in that, then they'll be blessed. But um, I think the the blessing is also kind of at the front end. Uh, the promise of blessing is a an encouragement for Israelites who have resources to be generous with those resources. I mean, if you if you think you live in a world where uh, a, a zero sum world of uh, extreme scarcity, uh, and anything you give up, uh, your uh, is a, is a is a loss to you, uh, and there's no uh, promise of uh, Yahweh's uh Yahweh covering your losses as it were, um, then uh much harder to motivate yourself to do this. If you're confident that the Lord blesses and you have Israel prospering and being fruitful, uh, and the Lord blessing them in ev- in all their undertakings as verse 10 promises, um, then you can be confident that you can give and give generously uh and uh, you know whatever whatever losses you incur are losses that the Lord has promised to to uh to uh, to fill up, I think this is the same logic that you have in the New Testament. Um, when I was working on my gratitude book, I went through gospel passages where Jesus talks about lending generously. You give without thought of repayment. Uh, invariably, Jesus adds to that because the Father will reward you, which is uh, just repayment at a higher level. You give without thought of repayment from the person that you're lending to. You don't uh, you don't uh, expect. Uh, 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 you don't demand repayment. You don't exact repayment. In the, con- in the scenario of Deuteronomy 15, you lend without thinking that that person is going to repay you. Uh, but the reason you can do that generously is because you're confident that your father is going to provide your provide you with uh, food and clothing and everything that you need. Uh, you seek his kingdom first. And you seek the generosity of the kingdom first, and then the Lord will add all these things to you. So um, I think I think that in both both Deuteronomy and in Jesus' teaching, that promise of the word's blessing is a key to uh, understanding the motivations of uh, of generous living,
1: right? Which just fits the whole Sabbath theology, doesn't it? If you see not gathering manna on the seventh day as a threat, then you will go out and gather twice as much on the sixth day and be punished as a result of it. And and so, um, that yeah, that just seems to uh, underlie the whole ethic, doesn't it?
0: One of the cruxes of this passage is the apparent contradiction between verse 4 and verse 11 regarding the uh, the future of the poor within Israel. Verse 4 promises, There shall be no poor among you, since Yahweh will bless you in the land that the Lord gives you. Uh, but then verse 11, The poor will never cease to be in the land, therefore I command you, you shall freely open your hand to your brother, to the needy and poor in the land. And uh, that there seems to, uh, I mean, on the face of it, it's just contradiction. There shall be no poor on the one hand, and yet, there's never going to be a time without poverty thoughts about how to how to resolve that apparent that uh, that tension or apparent contradiction
3: perhaps one where we could start is going back to the example of the manner that um, James mentioned the way that the lord provided everything that they needed and so there was no one who suffered lack and so we have the statement whoever gathered much had nothing left over and whoever gathered little had no lack And so you have a situation where everyone is amply provided for, and yet you also have these situations where people are definitely experiencing lack. There are people who do not have enough to um, get by with, they need gifts and provision from others. And yet, in the New Testament, Paul can take that same verse that's used to apply to the immediate provision for each and every family of everything that they needed and he can apply it to the um, life of the church where it means that everyone has what they need but that provision is often provided from the rich to the poor within the body and so you have in second corinthians verse 8 Um, I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. So there will be people who are poor, and yet that is not a situation that rules out the provision of all The divine provision for all of the needs of the people. That same verse can be applied in the situation where the Lord is providing for people through the rich being generous to the poor in their midst.
0: Thank you again for enjoying this episode of The Theopolis Podcast.